Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. My name is Hal Bryan and I'm EAA's Managing Editor for Print and Digital Content and Publications. Down at the socially distanced plus a couple of feet other end of the table, it is... I'm Chris Henry. I'm the EAA Aviation Museum Programs Coordinator. And joining us uh, remotely through the magic of the internet is uh, Jim, Zach, Olzaki, and we were talking... uh, talking offline that it really is Zach that if you see him and yell Jim he probably won't even turn around so Zach uh, welcome to the green dot well thanks for having me I'm looking forward to this well we're, we're sure glad to have you here now uh, Zach has just been uh, elected to the role of uh, president of Warbirds of America so uh, certainly glad to have uh, glad you have you take the helm and uh, talk to us a bit about uh, what Warbirds is up to these days so let's uh, let's start where we always like to start. Let's go back to the beginning, Zach. And uh, you know, what was your first introduction to aviation? Were you a kid building models and looking up and going to air shows, or uh, how did you how did you get started? Well, you stole you stole my opening line. That's exactly <laughs> right. You know, so I I was a kid and I was building models, and I didn't uh, I, I didn't choose to build any other models but airplanes. So I got to know my airplanes pretty well. Um, you know, I, I'll try to give you the short version. Uh, uh, years later, I'm going off to college and I decided uh, I'd like to get into the uh, Air Force ROTC program and maybe be a jet jockey. I was also playing college football at the time and uh, I got my knee wiped out while playing and uh, I got called back by the commandant uh, of the Corps there and uh, who I'd gotten to know pretty good. And he had told me that uh, because of my knee injury, uh, I was not going to uh, be able to fly. And um, it, 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 at least the program that I was in the first two years, it was just part of the curriculum and credits. In the last two years, you come back as a junior, you take the oath and you're in. So uh, they, I'd already passed the uh, Air Force officers qualifying test. They said, you know, we still want you in the Air Force. Uh, you know, you can do a whole bunch of other things. But when you go home this summer and come back, you know, you need to make a decision. And I made the decision not to stay in the program. And, uh, you know, so some years passed by, I'm still kind of missing uh, airplanes. And um, my now ex-wife's father um, had a plane and uh, looked on the table one day and there was a Warbirds magazine and talk about restoring Warbirds. And all of a sudden, it all flushed back in. He let me use his plane to get my pilot's license. Um, I I moved at that time uh, to uh, Minnesota. And uh, there was a wealthy gentleman there who had a number of warbirds. I contacted him, said, uh, "You ever thought about, you know, creating a museum?" And he said, "Well, uh, tell me more about it." And I said, "Well, I, I don't have the money, but I probably have the time, and you probably uh, have the money and don't have the time." And together we formed uh, Bob Pond's Plains of Fame East uh, Air Museum, and the rest is downhill. Uh, got to get involved with form the museum. The museum kept growing. He let me fly his planes uh, for the price of gas and uh, on and on and on it goes. I eventually met John Baugh and John Baugh dragged me further in. And uh, next thing you know, I'm involved with the Warbirds of America National in between there. And currently I'm also president of uh, the Florida Warbird Squadron. So that's kind of the the short version that I (laughs) stole a lot of time with. 
Wow. So you were part of the sort of the making of what became the Palm Springs Air Museum. I was I was the beginning. That's correct. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, just out of curiosity, what was the first warbird that you really had a chance to get your hands on? That I had a chance to get my hands on. Um, well, depend. You know, I, I, I it's, it's a hierarchy. I, I put a couple hours on Bob's Cub. I probably put uh, twenty or twenty-five hours on Bob's Stearman, maybe even up to fifty. And then I uh, eventually uh, jumped into Bob's T6, and I, oh boy, you know, I may have put in 150 hours uh, in that. Uh, And along the way, I got to get a little uh, stick time in a P-40 Warhawk. He had a dual-control P-40. He got a Russian Yak-11 that he had a big 1820 put on it. I got to get stick time in that. So uh, it it was a, a thrill of a lifetime and a dream come true. Uh, this may be the the first time on our podcast that Ty was actually able to capture the sound of drool, <laughs> which if you, I don't know exactly what it sounds like, but oh, you mentioned well, the P forty, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. luckily I've got a uh, lot swooning uh, on this end. So, so how did you go from uh, you know basically starting to uh, become involved with Warbirds and the Warbirds chapter or squadron? Um, how did you go to becoming president of the organization? Um, well, well, that was about instantaneous. It, uh, <laughs> I had uh, transferred. Well, I, that's not even true, but I, I had retired from my um, corporate job uh, with a Fortune 500 company. And, well, uh, I ran an office for them in Minnesota when I was doing Bob Pond's thing. I transferred back to Stanford, Connecticut, to help become part of a running a, a medical malpractice program. Then I retired and came to Florida. The Florida Warbird folks, uh, I started to kind of get to hang around, go and hang around some Warbirds again. And they found out, discovered some folks knew me, Link Dexter being one of them, and uh, realized that I had uh, run Bob Pond's museum. And they were looking for someone to take over and run the Florida Warbird Squadron, and they asked me to do it, and I said yes. And uh, <laughs> so uh, I was hook, line, and sinker. I was back in again, and shortly <laughs> after that, I uh, acquired my own uh, Warbird and got back on the, the local circuit anyway. Then I started flying for a demo team with a demo team, and um, uh, John Baugh uh, was kind of a friend of mine, and he uh, started telling the folks uh, on the board of the national part of Warbirds of America that I should uh, I should be asked to come on board on the board so uh, they asked me to come on the board I've been on the board for a while and and uh, next thing you know here I am the president of the whole thing now well congratulations that's that's great to hear you mentioned acquiring a warbird of your own uh, tell us about that well uh, I fly a I currently fly a t-34 um, when I retired and came back here uh, kind of an interesting kind of sub story it, um my wife kept saying oh you know what can i get you for your birthday uh and then um you know we started going to some of the air shows and things and she decided to get me a ride uh in in one of those kinds of planes you keep talking about and uh, that was a t6 <laughs> <laughs> and uh so she had uh, printed out a piece of paper of an organization a little further north who sold rides and I, I, I thanked her very and, and said, here's your birthday present. And 
I said, oh, that's sweet, honey, but you know, I'm not paying that kind of money for something I've already done a bunch of hours in. And uh, so I made a couple of phone calls and, uh, and talked to some folks and Link Dexter, again, was one of them. He said, well, you've got a great T6 driver in your backyard who's a snowbird, uh, and it's Don Stamp, who, uh, if, if you know him or you don't know him, he's very respected, one of the top formation flyers for, for the T6 uh, group, uh, NADA. And, and uh, so I called him one day, and off we went. and. Flew his T6, and uh, you know, pretty soon I had a friend say to me, oh, "You loved it so much." And getting back in the saddle, he says, "You, you know, before you get too old for it and, and old and broken, you you need to uh, feed that fire and get yourself a warbird." So I kind of looked around at T6s, T28s, and T34s. When the dust settled, I got a T34, and that's it. I've been flying it ever since. That's fantastic. Uh, it. it it looks like such a fun airplane. It must just be a blast. It is. Yeah. And, and you know, here I, you know, I'm, I'm be the first to say that I'm, I'm getting older and slower and, uh, um, you know, so the T-34 is a tricycle gear. It's not a tail dragger. Uh, it doesn't, uh, eat the fuel that the T-6 and the T-28 does. Right. Um, if you really have a serious problem for need for a mechanic, and you don't have a T-34 expert, uh, people who know Bonanzas can work on most of the things. And uh, one of the T-34 uh, experts in the whole United States is uh, over in the Daytona area at uh, New Smyrna Beach. And that uh, was George Baker Aviation. Is Curtis now acquired George Baker Aviation. And he's probably one of the four or five T-34 experts in the country. So I'm in a good place. I was going to say, you know, when you're talking about uh, whether it's warbirds or, or you know, vintage uh, vintage aircraft, there's something, it's it's always so great when you sort of get into that world and then you find you find the person. I mean, you find the people, you know, so who's, uh, yeah, I got a T-34 guy, you know, and, and uh, you know, this woman over here, she knows fabric or so-and-so knows this, so-and-so knows that. And you get dialed in, and that sense of community is so is so powerful. And there's something so reassuring about uh, about knowing that you've uh, identified and hopefully you know befriended the experts. Well, yeah, and, and, and you know the the story just can can mushroom and get bigger and bigger and bigger. So here I am at my T thirty four. I know the the guy up in New Smyrna Beach, and uh, just down the road from them is a little T thirty four formation group calls itself Retro Flight. And uh, so I started to get to know them. I casually started flying with them a little bit. And next thing after that, they lost one of their team. They asked me to become part of the team. So I got on the Florida air show circuit flying with that, that team. And, um, and uh, it's only maybe about two years ago that the team disbanded uh, mostly because the guys uh, of age, uh, um, you know, uh, retiring from flying totally. And, sure. and uh, so I don't, retro flight doesn't really fly together anymore, but uh, uh, it did up until about two years ago and it was just a hoot. Oh, that had to be a blast. So 2020 has been uh, uh, a memorable year, might be one word for it. Uh, a crazy year, a, a difficult year for so many people. Um, how is uh, how is Warbirds doing as an organization, and how are you guys staying engaged and and keeping uh, keeping the mission at the forefront of keeping them flying? 
Well, I, you know, that's an excellent question. I, and I, I think we all want to know the answer to that. Oh, I wasn't supposed to say that. Was I? <laughs> <laughs> we're, 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 we're all exploring and learning our way around. And those of us that are older, I think, are, are struggling a little more because the answer to the question is that you quickly have to uh, become versed in, in uh, digital media, the computer, um, streaming, virtual reality, Zoom meetings. Um, but that being said, that's the answer to your question. We're learning fast. We're having conference calls. We're uh, communicating more in emails. We're having some Zoom meetings. We're, uh, we're doing everything that we can. Uh, uh, Scott Guyette and his team at Sleeping Dog are, um, are putting, so we have an e-blast we put together and put out there regularly. Right now, I would qualify that as entertainment and, and keeping the finger on the pulse of the organization and our members, trying to keep them connected. Um, the next step that uh, we're planning is to put something more informational or educational along with those e-blasts. Um, and then uh, another effort that uh, we've kind of started is, uh, is is that we want our members and the people out there to know more about who we are, what we do, why we do it, and educate them on that. And with a little bit of luck, a little further down the road, uh, assuming we're successful with that, I think we owe our uh, membership and the people out there a report card. So if we turn around and tell them, here's who we are, who's who we're trying to be, ask them who or what else or more we can be for them, then, you know, I hope to report back and say, here, how are we doing? Here's how we think we're doing. So, so that's kind of the direction we're pointed in. So the, uh, the museum guy in me has to ask, uh, you know, you've worked around aviation museums uh, a, a good bit. Uh, how does preserving these aircraft uh, go along with sort of the slogan of Warbirds, which is to keep them flying? Uh, you know, what does it mean to you guys to keep to just do that, to keep them flying? Well, yeah, if we look at the purpose of the organization and kind of what drew us all in, that's the meat and potatoes of the whole thing. It's uh, finding a warbird that needs restoration, finding a warbird that's flying and keeping it properly maintained. Uh, at the heartbeat of all of that is something you're right in the middle of, learning the history of that warbird or that type of warbird drilling down and trying to learn that specific warbird's history. Um, you know, so so that the question is, how does that fit? Well, it's it's a perfect fit. How to stay involved and and uh, share that information and and get educated on that information. That's something we're learning all the time. Um, I I think I hope I that answers your question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you use the word uh, sort of getting involved, staying involved, and uh, and that I think is a uh, is an interesting question for anybody uh, interested in warbirds and. Uh, there's a, uh, you know, there's a perception there that, you know, you come to, come to Oshkosh, you go to Air Venture and you go down and to Fighter Town and Warbird Alley and all these places. And you see these, you know, stunning restorations, these beautiful pieces of history, these, you know, multi-million dollar machines, um, that it's, uh, that's a bit of fantasy for a lot of people. But um, what do you what do you tell to say to somebody like that who doesn't have the the means to go buy and operate a Mustang but wants to be involved? What's what's their place in the organization? 
That, that's a perfect question. And it doesn't matter where you are, whether you're at the museum level. When I first came over and I got involved in the local Florida Warbird Squadron, moved up to Warbirds of America National. I, I think what we sometimes forget is that to survive and expand and enjoy what we all love, it's not about the person who owns flies or owns and flies these warbirds. We couldn't have this environment without those people. But what it's really about at the grassroots level is the people who are passionate. It's that kid way back when who was making models and reading the stories. Grew up, became a young adult, and did the next best thing is buying magazines, going to air shows, maybe joining organizations or going to hang out with the guy at the field who lets them polish the plane or help them turn a few wrenches. It's the passion, and that's included in part of what I said a minute ago. When we want to reach out to our members, it's not just the members who have a plane or fly a plane. It's the members who follow those members who have a plane or fly a plane. And we want to try to feed that fire. We want to ask them and find out from them part of our new initiative. You know, what more we can do? What what are we doing good at? What are we not doing so good at? We want to get better at that. You know, we're all getting older and we're losing pilots. We're losing planes that, that uh, you know, we need to find a way, a better way to get together. We all say we're together, but so many people associate themselves. Well, I'm part of that organization and I'm part of this organization. But I don't know how many of them answer that question with the first sentence being, we're part of Warbirds of America. And then they drill down and say, well, I'm a T6 driver. I'm in NADA. Well, I'm a, this, uh, I'm, a, I'm a donor and supporter of the restoration of this plane in this organization. And I, we have meetings and go over there for coffee all the time. We need to get to that level again. We once were. We were all kind of one big happy family. And um, I think we've gotten a little more split up and segmented than than we'd like to be. You know, Warbirds was uh, uh, became a division of EAA very early on. Um, you know, EAA starting in 53, focusing on home builds, but Vintage and Warbirds came along almost immediately. It was really within just a couple of years. So there's certainly a, there's certainly a long history of, of Warbirds being right there at the core of what, uh, of what EA is. And, uh, it's, it's nice to hear you. Paul Paul himself was a Warbird driver. Absolutely. Right. Flying the Mustang and the P64. And, and of course his, uh, he had quite a uh, military flying career as well as an instructor and, and flying for the guard after, after the war. Um, so anyway, so it's nice to hear you talking about sort of that, uh, you know, that, that all inclusive, uh, you know, big tent approach because, because let's face it, you know, warbirds are a draw. Uh, warbirds get people into uh, into aviation, and and as we said before, you know, okay, maybe maybe not every you probably can't go to every uh, every kid in every school and say all of you can grow up and buy a Mustang someday and afford the fuel and everything else. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's just not realistic, but you can all yeah, grow well, up and be involved and you can find your way into aviation and, and warbirds are so often the hook for people. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, tying that back into the passion, um, you know, I have a, a great story to tell back in my Bob Pond Plains of Fame East museum days that, uh, 
it was Air Venture time, and uh, back back then it wasn't even Air Venture yet. It was the Oshkosh Air Show time, and uh, Bob being a big supporter, it wasn't like uh, send, sending over one or two of his planes. Uh, and as the director at the time, he had instructed me, we're going to take these six warbirds over there, Zach. I want you to get in touch with the folks over at Oshkosh. I want you to make plans to uh, tell them what day my planes are coming in and set up the arrangements for all six of my planes to park together, which is kind of interesting because still to this day, you know, they park the Navy stuff over here and the Army Air Corps (laughs) stuff over there. And, uh, you know, (laughs) so I made a call to the guy who was uh, in charge. Guess what? There's that name that keeps coming up, Link Dexter. (laughs) And um, Link Dexter and I... um, (laughs) had to talk multiple times because he started with no way Jose. And I said, "Mm, gee, that's too bad. I don't think Bob will be sending uh, six planes over this year. And uh, back and forth we went and, you know, when the, when it was all said and done, we'd worked out a plan that made everybody happy. And that, and when I say that Bob was bringing six, significant warbirds in addition to the fact that i flew the t6 over that year and uh somebody uh, his, his chief pilot kermit lequay flew something over to bring family and members over so uh, we were well represented uh that year and most years that we attended and and, and i want to keep keep going on that theme um when bob got every time bob got a plane to be restored he would uh, get, you know, in striking distance of, of the plane being done, and uh, he and his team would research the choices for the paint scheme. He'd have Stan Stokes, uh, if you all know who he is. Oh, sure. A better, yeah, you know, most well-known Warbird uh, artist paint. Uh, his chosen paint scheme in a painting for Bob's office or his home. He had so many of them at that point. And then he would take the painting to the paint shop guy and say, this is the paint scheme. And uh, for those people who don't know, most of those planes are painted, not just what you would say is that's the color of the plane in World War II. They'd often find out what the paint chip number was and paint the plane with that paint chip number or duplicate that paint chip number. Um, so, so it was a big deal. And uh, when he got the B-25, my dad had been in the South Pacific in B-25s. And I'd normally kept my nose out of all of that, but I couldn't resist it. I sent uh, Bob a, a formal letter requesting that uh, he paint the B-25 in the most notable B-25 of my dad's squadron, which was um, um, the uh, 5th Air Force. Um, 71st Bomb Group, 17th Bomb Squadron, Reconnaissance Squadron, actually. And uh, he accepted that, painted the plane in um, Mitch the Witch colors. And we took it to Oshkosh. And I happened to be at Mitch the Witch when this old gentleman and his family came up and Semi crying and semi hooting out loud. There's my plane. There's my plane. And I'll be damned if it wasn't one of the original crew members of Mitch the Witch 
And that's part of why we're all in this as well. You know, to keep the memory alive, keep the planes flying, it just was, I almost was taken to tears to watch this gentleman be taken to tears. It's a, there's just a little side story of another reason we do all of this. Well, that's incredible. I mean, can you imagine his reaction, hoping to come to an air show and just maybe see a B-25 that represents the type of aircraft he flew to show his family, and he finds one painted in the markings of the exact airplane he flew during the war. I mean, that, God, I mean, you know, that's a story that you know still has to echo through that family to this day. Yep, yep, absolutely. It's uh, one of my proudest moments of being on, on the circuit, if you will. And that's something we can never lose sight of. I mean, uh, you know, when you're involved with Warbirds, uh, number one, uh, if you if you are that sort of owner and or pilot, um, you have a it's a privilege, and it's also there's a terrific responsibility that comes from it. Um, you know, those of us that are into any uh, vintage types, whether they be Warbird or civilian, we're we're stewards of those airplanes for a period of time, but. Uh, if if all of us that that have some involvement in that world do our jobs right, you know those those airplanes will be telling this the stories longer than we will. Ain't that the truth? Yep, yep. And someday we'll be the old guy taking his family and grandkids down the line, and we may not say I served in that airplane, but I was uh, in the museum or. Uh, I used to own one of the, whatever it is, then we'll be the one in tears seeing somebody carrying them. Because you had a part of that, uh, a part of that airplane's history. You were, you touched a a piece of it. So, uh, Zach, we've talked about, uh, you know, we've talked about everybody being welcome and fostering that passion and things. And then, you know, trying to be realistic about, uh, about who can necessarily might have the means to own and operate a warbird. But um, let's talk about the other end of the spectrum because there are a lot of affordable warbirds out there. You know, your L3s and L4s, L2s, uh, the liaison birds, stuff like that. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, about the, the the truly affordable side of thing and and where they fit in the organization? Well, um, you you probably know, but the audience uh, probably doesn't. When Warbirds of America was first formed. It was only for, I'm going to say fighters. I don't even think the bombers were in then. If you had a fighter, you could be in Warbirds of America and you could bring it to the annual member gathering. Um, And I'm going to kind of slide off with a side story here, which will tie back in. But again, uh, a legend in the the Warbird community, John Baugh, a friend of mine, I told you, kind of brought me in um, way back in the old days. Uh, and he was one of Paul Pubberersny's very close friends. And he was there when Paul was getting involved with the Warbirds and expanding it. So um, John Ball went off and bought a Stearman. And uh, the next year that uh, the Oshkosh Air Show took place, he flew the Stearman in, he landed, and he started taxiing over to where he could see the, the fighters were. And there were a whole bunch of people, marshals and all, wouldn't let him in, wouldn't let him point at him, point at him. You got to go down here, park here. Well, I, I wanted to park over there. He said, no, you're a vintage aircraft. You need to park here. Those are warbirds over there. 
Well, it's kind of the flip part of where we're going with this story. I'll I'll bring us back home. But he was so upset, and he had money then because his company had started to become a big success. He went home, and in the off season, he bought a Mustang. He flew back in with his Mustang the following year, went parked over with the fighters, and then proceeded. Uh, as you know, he spent a, multiple terms as a president and, uh, and became involved with the board, and they started allowing anything. I, I think the next step was anything that was military, World War II military, which since got expanded to anything that's ex-military, forget whether it was World War II or not. So, so it all happened um, not long after and opened the door to people who couldn't either get access to or afford fighters buying the L-Birds, buying the trainers, and uh, as you well know, that's where the numbers are today. And that's and that's there's as much passion and love for the L-Birds and the trainers as there is for any other type of plane. And because there are more people involved in those subgroups, there's actually more activity, more conversation, more storytelling, more hangar flying going on down there. It has been a great change and it's a change that took place a long time ago and one of our big benefactors uh, jim cavanaugh um, has the uh, restoration station that focuses on l birds every year at air venture um, there's probably a whole lot more we could tell uh, with people's individual stories but they will spend as much time restoring an l bird as people are spending on the fighters. That's well, it's great to hear about the the health of that side of things. And, um, and certainly, you know, when we're, we're talking to people or if I'm doing stories for the magazine uh, about airplanes like that, you're absolutely right. The passion is, is absolutely the same. And many times the, the level of effort uh, is, is the same. Uh, you know, some of the dollars are going to be a little bit different or on a different scale. But it doesn't change the passion of it. It doesn't change the fact that uh, those airplanes played uh, every bit of a, a vital role. You know, you talk about the Stearman making that that first trip and getting sort of shunned from warbirds. It's like, well, how many uh, how many pilots would there have been to fly those fighters in World War II if they hadn't started on the Stearman? Yeah, yeah. Here's a great segue off of that. So when I um, I sat down with Bob Pond, as I told you back in the old days, and I said, well, have you ever thought about starting a museum? And he said, well, tell me more. Uh, it, uh, it turns out that once Bob and I became like uh, big brother, little brother, or father's son, we really got pretty close, going to lunch often and social events together. And um, so at the time, uh, I was, hadn't flown any warbirds yet, and uh, I was flying... Uh, Cessna 152, Cessna 172, and Bob had a V-tail Bonanza. So as soon as I joined, he said, Zach, why don't you start flying my Bonanza? And I'm flying his Bonanza. Uh, I'll try to keep this part of the story. It, it kind of replicates itself. Well, I'm out at the museum one day doing something, and Bob's there, and we're kind of chatting and talking, and then here comes a steerman down the taxiway, and it turns in by the museum. I turn to Bob, and I said, Bob, 
do you know uh, this gentleman or the pilot or, or what's the story? And he says, oh, yeah, Zach. I'm talking a little bit like Bob does. I've told this story so often. Yeah, I sure do. He says, uh, that's so, so-and-so flying a plane, and uh, that's actually my steerman. I just bought it. You know, if you're going to be part of a warbird museum, you need to start flying warbirds. And every pilot who ever flew warbirds started on the steerman. Or, you know, many have started in in the, one of the Ryans or the J3 Cub or something. But yeah, everybody who's moved their way up has flown the Stearman. You need to start flying it. Well, it turns out he bought it. And I swear to this day, he'd never totally admit it. He bought it to add to his collection. But I mean, my gosh, he had fighters and bombers. Did he need a Stearman? Uh, he probably wanted one, but did he, you know, and he, I, I swear to this day, it was because he wanted me to start flying a Stearman. So I started flying a Stearman and I swear the story repeats itself uh, i don't know a year later a t6 is taxiing in and then they you know well the pilot is actually the guy that i just hired to be a mechanic and the plane i just bought from him and you need to step up everybody who flew the steerman stepped up to the t6 and the next thing i knew i was flying his t6 so that's uh all of those trainers and uh, lesser planes served a huge role just like you said it you didn't get to the end of the line until you went up through the uh, chronology of planes to learn your way up there. Well, you know, you know, and something that you kind of touched on too, and it, I do uh, among some others here, we do some of the oral history of the timeless voices. And, you know, one of the, the questions I always like to ask is, do you remember your first, you know, your first solo? And it's always amazing to hear like these fighter aces and astronauts and, and folks that were test pilots, always coming back to flying, you know, a Ryan or a Stearman or something on that first solo. And, you know, there are feelings of being nervous or, you know, or when their instructor parked them and got out and just said, okay, now take it, you know? And so to me that the, when I see those aircraft, that's the kind of stuff I always think about is just that, uh, you know, so many people that went on, who knows who was in that Stearman and what they went on to. I mean, fighter aces or, or anything else. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, you know, before I made my first flight in that Stearman, I turned to the guy that I was going to go up and fly with. And I said, well, what's it like flying a Stearman? He says, well, I'm going to give you a simple answer, Zach. He says, you'll come back with a smile on your face. <laughs> he was right. That's absolutely and, true. And, yeah. Yeah. You get the wind blowing in your face and, uh, and, and you're, you're hanging out there. You're, you're, you can fly slow and slow. And, uh, it was just wonderful. And it is, uh, it is a powerful thing to think about. Uh, like you said, like Chris had said, the, uh, any steerman that served in that era or the other trainers, the Ryans, uh, you know, around the world, things like the tiger moth and other equivalents. Um, Yep. The number of, of first solos and the number of, of, of just unforgettable experiences uh, that were had, you know, that in, in some cases you may have a single trainer uh, that, uh, that has more of that sort of crammed into its history than, uh, than a, a celebrated fighter or bomber. Well said. That's exactly right. Yep. And, and and imagine the transition if uh, you're a T6 driver and uh, you've you've had the opportunity to have someone in the back seat and uh, be your instructor or I should say in the front seat and then um, it's time to move on up and 
your uh, your instructor gives you the book. He says, "Here, read this, and tomorrow morning I want you to go over there. there there's the plane you're flying. That can, now there's nobody with you. <laughs> you jump in, you look around, uh, you memorize the stuff in the book, and off you go. It's it's now or never. And 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 think about all of that extra torque, and you're feeling it in the in the right rudder, and uh, there's a lot going on." That, that's another one of those moments you never forget, you know, when you're and 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 in the in World War II, that was some 18, 19 year old kid. Right. And it it's remarkable to look back. I mean, a couple of things come to mind. First of all, that, you know, I've I've had a few memorable first solos in my my flying career. Um, and, and, you know, there's the there's the real first one. But then there's, you know, the first time flying a, a a new type that I've been checked out in and there's some special ones there that are just as memorable to me as that original first solo. And so you can certainly see that carrying through to these, uh, to these air crew back in the war going through, you know, airplane to airplane that, you know, soloing the T six, maybe it's not exactly the same feeling as if, as the first true solo, but that's a powerful thing. You talked about all the torque and the, and, well, and the power, uh, in fact. And so I think those things, uh, yeah, those things really resonate to uh, really resonate with people. And those stories are so vital to tell. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, oh, and, and as a kid and, and moving our way up through the thing, it's kind of like when you were a little kid and you went to the parade, there was the sound of the, the band going through and the beating on the, the big drum. Well, how about the first time you went to wherever the field, the air show, you went somewhere and there's the sound of a Merlin, or a radial cranked up and it's sweet music. It absolutely is. It's just about the best sound, uh, the best sound around. And here's looking forward to, to next summer in air venture 2021 back, uh, better and happier and stronger than ever. Huh? Amen. Amen. That's what we're all headed for working towards. And, uh, let's, let's all do our part to make that be exactly what happened here, here. Well, Zach, on that note, uh, we're just about to the end of the episode, so I want to thank you again for taking the time to join us, and congratulations once again on your new position at uh, at Warbirds. That's great to great to have somebody with your your background and your obvious passion and excitement in that role. Well, I appreciate you having me on board, and uh, look forward to talking to you more in the future and seeing you out there. That'll be terrific. With that, then, uh, thanks ongoing to everybody out there who listens uh, and tunes in uh, every couple of weeks when we put one of these episodes out. You're the reason we do this. And the people that take the time to give us some comments, whether uh, email at feedback at ea.org, commenting on the blog posts at inspire.ea.org. There's a blog post that goes up for each one of our podcast episodes, and you can leave comments there. Or leave us reviews on iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher or any of those other ways you consume a podcast. Uh, that great feedback, those ratings, uh, the kind words that people say about the, the show are the one and only reason uh, that, uh, that we're able to continue doing it. So our thanks to all of you out there for listening. Keep that feedback coming. And we look forward to catching up to you next time when you're cleared to land on the Green Dot.